every little thing that you do for us, every little thing that you um, that you see fit to to bless us with, the things that even in in the midst of problems, the midst of struggles, the midst of, of soundboard issues, lightning storms, and all that nonsense, God, you still speak out and you still speak louder than all the issues. You speak out louder than anything that we could ever say or do. And God, we thank you so much for that. And we ask that today uh, you speak to each one of our hearts in a very special, unique way. And uh, just let us let us see that your name really is the one that is to be glorified and the one that is to be magnified above all else. In everything we say and do, we thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're not finished worshiping through song, so um, David will be back and the girls here shortly. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we uh, continue our current sermon series on the prayer life of Jesus. Remember, we're... We began uh, two weeks ago a two-year focus on the life of Christ called the real Jesus. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that the Jesus that we think we worship, that we think we are worshiping is the Jesus of Scripture. There's a lot of Jesus worship going on, but it's not necessarily the worship of the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why we've entitled it the, the real Jesus. And so, uh, hopefully through this, you'll discover some ideas that you had about Jesus that weren't right. Some truths that you have known for a long time will, um, you'll gain a further assurance of those truths uh, through this. And then the, other, the third part of that is, is that in our time together, preaching the life of Jesus, there will be new truths about Jesus that you will learn. And even more so, some of those truths that you already know, uh, you'll be able to go down deeper into those truths um, than you have before. Last week, we began with verse 9, and today we will finish verse 9. So in Matthew's Gospel, he writes this concerning what is known as the Lord's Prayer, or probably better known as the model prayer, or probably should be called the disciples' prayer. Jesus said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So last week, we learned that praying begins with the opening phrase, Our Father. And that's important, because this, understand, this understanding establishes, remember, our access our attitude, and our asking. Saying our Father aims to launch us into the next part of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this Lord's Prayer is very methodical. There is a rhyme and a reason to why it is laid out in the manner in which Jesus lays it out. Now, this is not a random prayer. This is just not Jesus sticking words and phrases just in any you know, just kind of hodgepodge. There is a flow to the prayer, all right? And so let me just throw this out to you. The Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it command a particular length of time in prayer. A lot of, a lot of times people would say, well, you probably should pray about an hour a day. And 
that's often taken from uh, Jesus praying in the garden where Jesus said, could you not tarry one hour? We used to keep a book out in our bookstore called, called The Hour That Changes the World by a guy named Dick Eastman. Some of you may have picked up a copy of that. And basically, Dick Eastman has put together, using the Lord's Prayer, um, a method of praying which basically takes about an hour to do. And you may say, there is no way that I could pray an hour. And basically what Dick Eastman does is in that is he breaks the Lord's Prayer down into 12 segments and basically says anybody can pray each one of these segments for five minutes. And if you know math, five times 12 is 60. Praying an hour for some of us may sound mathematically impossible. But in truth and reality, if we just look at the Lord's Prayer and how the Lord teaches us to pray, it's not such a big task to accomplish. But again, I'm not telling you you need to leave here today and set yourself a goal that tomorrow I'm going to get up and pray an hour. The goal right now is just to get to praying. Because remember what we, uh, maybe we didn't say it last week, I know we talked about it Wednesday night, that the average Christian, um, there was a big prayer meeting that took place with some of the top, with, with pastors and top lay leaders in churches back in the 1990s, and they did a survey of these, uh, the cream of the crop of Christianity, and they found out that the average person only prays about three and a half minutes per day on average. And so, uh, again, this is not about a length of time as much as it is we can do better than three and a half minutes, right? And so, hopefully, as we continue this journey through the Lord's Prayer, you will see um, all that there is to pray about and to pray in a way that doesn't sound redundant because I think many of us fail to pray because we end up saying the same things over and over and over again and we get tired of sounding like a broken record. And if we're tired of hearing us pray, surely God is. So this phrase, our Father, aims to launch us into the next part of our prayer, which is hallowing His name. So let me ask you a question. What does it mean to hallow something? That's a, it's a very unusual word uh, in our English vocabulary, at least for 21st century man. Not so uh, uh, unused in Old English. It was a very common word used. And really, to be honest with you, when you look at the Greek word here that is being used, really the best English word that we have to try to sum up what is meant in Greek is this word hallowed. It is, it is the best translation. So here's the definition. If you want to know what it means to hallow, it's pretty easy. To hallow means to treat something as absolutely sacred or ultimate. It means to treat something as, listen, absolutely sacred and ultimate. Say it one more time so you can write that down. To treat something as absolutely, don't, if you write this definition down, please put absolutely in there. Absolutely sacred and ultimate. 
It means to make something your ultimate concern, to make it the most important thing, to make it the most crucial thing, to make it the most sacred thing, to make it the most ultimate thing, and to make it the supreme aim of your life. That's what it means to hallow something. We hallow what we love, and we hallow most that which we love most. So I'm going to use, listen, so I'm going to use the word hallow, praise, and adoration kind of interchangeably throughout the sermon. When I use them, I'm meaning, it's, I'm using the same idea, okay? Praise, adoration, hallow. I have this program uh, on my word processing where I'm typing in the sermon and it's called Grammarly. I don't know if any of you ever use that program, Grammarly. It's a really cool program. It teaches you how to be a better writer. <laughs> and it will, it will redline your paper if you use a particular word over and over and over again. And so it kept redlining, because redlin I was using hallow, hallow, hallow. And it will give you suggestions, and it was like, <laughs> use adore, use praise, use something else besides hallow all the time so anyway so I, i'm going to switch it up and kind of use them interchangeably but when i do i want you to know that i'm saying the same uh giving the same message saint augustine says this you are what you love you are what you love our father knows our propensity to praise and therefore, love other gods. Now, I know you don't have any statues in your house that you're bowing down to and worshiping or, or praising, but let's be honest this morning. We have idols in our life that we give our worship to outside of God. Some of us, it's our occupation. Some of us, it could be our marriage. Some of us, it could be our children. Some of us, it could be our 401K. Some of us, it could be leisure time. Some of us, it could be our hobby. Martin Luther was right when he made the statement in the 1500s that the heart is an idol-making factory. Actually, it was John Calvin that said that. But our hearts are an idol-making factory. There's an orientation to the Lord's Prayer so what I mean by that, again, there's an order, there's an orientation to the Lord's Prayer. Because, and this is the reason why there's an orientation to the Lord's Prayer, because our hearts need reorienting each time we go to prayer. That would have been a great point to say amen. There's an orientation to the prayer because my heart and your heart, if you're a believer in Christ, it needs to be reoriented every time I go to prayer. Prayer is about our Father changing us, not us changing our Father. Hallowing or praising our Father establishes the right trajectory for prayer. Our love for the Father grows as we praise Him, while our love for false idols diminish. Most prayers are devoid of praise. 
How many of us bypass praise and accelerate right into petition? You know what petition is? Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. That's petition. It's going to be honest with you. That's what it is. Do we not love God? I believe it reveals the truth that we care not to acknowledge that we love the gifts rather than the giver. Why do so many people bypass hallowing or praising or adoring God and get right into petition is because we love the gifts more than we love the giver. I mean, ask yourself the hard question. How many of you would really love God if God never gave you anything but your eternal salvation? He never answered a prayer. He never gave you anything else in this life outside of salvation. How many of you would keep coming to God in prayer if you had no guarantee that he would give you anything? You see, here's what prayer is intended to do. To help you and I to see God as beautiful, not useful. Hmm? To help you and I see God as beautiful, not as useful. Remember the, remember the context of the text. Jesus is answering a request of his disciples. Teach us how to pray. Jesus is contrasting between religious and pagan praying and relational praying. Our praying reveals the reality of our hearts. Those who pray in a religious manner described by Jesus prove themselves to potentially be false believers. Furthermore, Jesus is gently rebuking his disciples for praying like pagans. Jesus is not saying don't be like them because you're better than them. Now follow this. Jesus is not saying, don't pray like them because you're better than them. Watch this. Pay attention. Listen very closely. He's saying, don't pray like them because you're children of God. Did you get that? Don't pray like them because you're better than them. Pray. Don't pray like them because you're a child of God. And you say, hmm, well, what's the big deal about that? Do you know if, you're, if, if you try to teach a child not to lie, and you say, don't you lie because you're better than people that lie. Ooh, not a good way to teach somebody how, why not to lie. Because you know what you're doing? You're inflating their pride. Well, don't lie, because you're, you're better than people that lie. Why should you not lie? Because you're better than people that lie? No, because you're a Christian, and to, and to lie as a Christian is to absolutely go against who you are. Not because you're better, but because of who you are. And so we should not pray like pagans, not because we're better than pagans, but because 
That's not the way you talk to your father. The placement of praise in the Lord's Prayer prevents us from running to petition. This is what God wants to prevent. He doesn't want us as children to bypass, uh, to, to bypass praise and go right into petition. He wants us to praise Him. If you bypass adoration, you will botch what is to come. Petition, asking God, is to come, and confession is to come. But if you, if you, if you leapfrog praise, adoration, hallowing, you will botch petition and confession. You will treat God as nothing more than a cosmic Santa Claus. Your prayers will be narcissistic, and this makes God's name hollow, not hallowed. I want to be honest with you. Much of what we pray is narcissistic praise. And that doesn't hallow God's name. It makes God's name hollow. Praise and adoration of God is the thing that will heal your view of the world and your view of yourself. Adoration brings everything back into focus. Whatever you adore will run your life. You might want to write that down. Whatever you adore, you hallow, you praise, you worship, that's what's running your life. If you love your kids more than you love God, it'll run your life. You love your mate more than you love God, that will run your life. You love your job, it'll run your life. And guess what? All of those they make terrible saviors, which means they are terrible to worship. Now that you know how vital adoration is, let's talk about how you adore God, all right? This will go really quickly. So listen fast because we're going we're gonna to get through this quick. Number one is beholding. So how do you do this? So we're gonna, I'm going to show you a few verses in Psalm 63 real quick. To show you how you do this adoring, because or hallowing, because I'm sure you're asking, okay, well, how do I? So I, I get access to God through Him being my Father. So now, how do I go into this attitude of hallowing, worshiping, praising, adoring? Well, number one, you've got to start. There's an order here. You got to start with beholding. Now, in beholding, we do more than see. We observe details. Psalm 63, 2. David said, So I have looked upon you in upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So beholding is more than just seeing, but it's observing the details. Beholding our Father enables us to take our first steps into prayer. As previously stated, hallowing our Father establishes the trajectory of our prayer. William Blake may have been the first to say, we become what we behold, but the Apostle Paul had stated this truth in his first century letter to the Corinthians, where he says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. I don't know how many Sherlock Holmes fans are here this morning, but that's one of my favorite uh, books uh, to read, series of books to read. And um, in one particular book called A Scandal in Bohemia, Sherlock Holmes says to his, uh, instructs his companion, Dr. Watson, on the difference between seeing and observing. So listen to this little excerpt from the book. Watson says, when I hear you give your reasons, I remark, the thing always appears to me, appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet, I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Holmes, quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up, that, which lead up from the hall to this room. Watson, frequently. Holmes, how often? Watson, well, some hundreds of times. Holmes, then how many steps are there? Watson, how many? I do not know. Holmes, quite so. You have observed, and yet you have seen. That's you, as quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. This is my point. Now I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. You see, beholding not only requires the binocular, but also the brain. The brain. John commands his readers in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. The ESV translates behold as see, but it means more than looking. It means to take special notice of something with the implication concerning yourself. So behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, and then it goes on, that we should be called the children of God. That's what we should behold. We, we've got to do more than see it. We've got to see the implications of it concerning who we are. When I, went, when I got to spend an hour in 2007 at the Sistine Chapel uh, in Rome, I beheld. When I got to go to the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, I went and I beheld. I mean, listen, when you go to the Sistine Chapel, you don't, you don't go into the Sistine Chapel and, and start talking to people about what you see. It's, it's, too, it's, too, it's too great. Matter of fact, one of the things I love about the Sistine Chapel is nobody talks. Not because there's a sign that says, be quiet, but because you go in and you're like, Wow. I mean, that's about all that can that your lips can formulate. Wow. You're just overwhelmed by what you see. When when I went to the Grand Canyon, I mean I Brandy and I went together and I loved her. I love her and I love being with her. But there was a point in time when I'm at the Grand Canyon that I just walked away from her and walked up on this little peak. One of the reasons why I walked up there is because I knew she wouldn't walk up there. But it was an opportunity for me to get away, not because I don't love her, but because of what I saw was so overwhelming that I just needed to sit there in the moment 
and be in awe. I just wanted to behold it. I just wanted to take in what I was seeing. When I went to Niagara Falls many years ago on a mission trip, I just beheld the power and the majesty and the glory of that great fall. You see, when you behold, you absorb all. When you behold, you just absorb all. So you can take, so you can take the next step of hallowing. You got to behold, right? You got to see it. You got to think, you know, you, you, you've got to begin to absorb what you're seeing in detail. You got to absorb it. I mean, you got to observe it so you can absorb it. But then it leads to thinking. So you got to be beholding. Now you got to be thinking. Now, sometimes we don't often think that adoration, praise, worship is, includes the brain, includes thinking, gray matter. But I'm telling you if, you, if you just come in here and sing songs without thinking about what you're singing, you've missed the whole point of worship. Worship is about head and heart. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in Sonnet 43 says, How do I love thee? Can you finish it? Let me count the ways. Why? Because thinking is remembering. Remembering is recounting. It's taking inventory. It's rummaging through the recesses of your mind and cataloging the stories of grace. Some of you need to go home today and you need to introduce this into your prayer life. Is that when, once you have come into God's presence through our Father then what you need to do is you, you need to sit down and, and begin to write down and catalog the stories of grace in your life. David says in Psalm 63, 6, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. As we, as we remember our Father's work within our life, we must avoid comprehensive statements. Meditating follows remembering. Meditation follows remembering. Why? Our remembering is comprehensive. It's, it's big thoughts. It's big ideas. But meditation literally means to chew. When we chew our food, we enable our bodies to absorb more nutrients and energy. Digesting is easier, and we experience a greater taste of what we are eating. How do we chew the comprehensive? Take the thought of the Father's love. You could be comprehensive and say in prayer, in adoration, thank you, God, for loving me, right? That's too comprehensive. That's cheap. That's laziness. Meditation looks like this. Let me show you how you take a comprehensive statement such as, thank you, God, for loving me. And let me show you how you meditate on it, right? Watch this. Thank you, Father, for loving me with costly love. For you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for me. Father, thank you for loving me with correcting love. For everyone he loves, he chastens, Hebrews 12, 6. 
Thank you, Father, for loving me with undeserving love. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 eight. And you could go on and on and on. And so what you do is you take those big comprehensive statements about God and you begin to chew on those and chew on those and chew on those. And what happens is you break it down, break it down and break it down. And all of a sudden, it bursts into your soul with flavor. And guess what? It brings nutrients to your soul. It brings energy to your soul. It brings stabilization to your soul. So we got to be holding. We got to be thinking. Now we got to be appraising. They're building. So I'm beholding. That leads me to start thinking, chewing, meditating. Now, what does that do? That leads me into this part called be appraising. I love the fact that the word appraisal has praise in it. To a, what does it mean to appraise? It means to compare something, right? Home appraisers determine the worth of a home by looking at the sale value of, of comparable homes. They call it comps. What are the comps on a house like this? That's how they determine the value of something. David uses appraisal in Psalm 63.3. He compares God's love and his life. Here's, how, here's what he said. Because of your steadfast love is better than life. We would significantly weaken our worship of idols if we practiced appraising. I grew up hearing my grandmother tell stories about growing up uh, in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And here's something she always said to us. She, she always said, you know what? We were, we were poor. We were dirt poor. But we didn't know it. She said, we didn't know we were dirt poor. Why? Because everybody else around them was dirt poor. When everybody else is as poor as you are, you don't think there's any difference, right? Why? Because there's nothing to compare it to. There, there's, there's nothing for appraisal there. I've heard all my life that people in America that fall into my financial category, which is... <laughs> Not wealthy, it, it, you know, at least I don't think it's wealthy. But I did this thing one time, it said that I fell into the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And I thought, there's no way I'm a 1%er. Oh, and by the way, uh, the vast majority of you in this room are a top 1% wage earner. If anybody in this room had a gross uh, income of $30,000, in 2019, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And some of you said, Phew. okay, if you made more than $15,000 in 2019, you are in the top 1.5% wage earners in the world. But you know what? You don't feel like that until you travel like I've been able to internationally and you see that that statistic is real when you come face to face in country after country and in city after city where people live in abject poverty when people live on less than two three four dollars a day but you don't know that that's true because you have nothing to compare it against 
David compared his greatest possession, his life, to the Father's steadfast love. And he says, you know what? Your love is better than my life. You know what? If we could start appraising stuff, we behold who God is, we start thinking about who God is, then guess what? We can start appraising who God is versus what we think is really important. I love the song that we sing, Jesus is Better. Let me just quote a little bit of it from to you. In all my victories, Jesus is better. But do you remember the next line? Help my heart to believe. More than any comfort, Jesus is better. Help my heart to believe. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Help my heart to believe. Our souls declaring Jesus is better help make my heart believe. That song's all about appraising. And what you've got what we've got to do in this these early moments of prayer, after we've beheld and after we've thought, and is we've got to begin to take who he is and compare it to everything else that we're worshiping so that we will stop worshiping what shouldn't be worshiped and start worshiping who should be worshiped. And I promise you, if you get that in line, when you get to petition, your petitions are going to sound a lot different than they would if you had bypassed praise. Last point. you got to be expressing so you've beheld him, you've been thinking, you'd be thinking about him, <laughs> you'd be appraising him, and then all of a sudden, the only step left comes natural. You gotta be expressing. You gotta be expressing. Beholding leads to be thinking, but thinking allows us to be appraising. Be appraising compels us to be expressing. In Psalm 63, 3 and 4. David said this, because of your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I lift up, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. What is David doing? He has beheld, he's been thinking, he's been meditating, and, that, and he's been appraising, and all of a sudden, he only has one recourse, and that is he's got to be expressing what he is experiencing. Hallowing leads us away from treating our Father as useful and helps us to see Him as beautiful. As we marvel at the excellencies of our Father, sketched in stunning portraits of unmatched beauty, verbal praise breaks forth. Beholding, thinking, and appraising allows us to enjoy our Father. How many of y'all don't enjoy prayer? Everybody just do this, because most of us don't enjoy it. And we should. However, this enjoyment remains incomplete until it is expressed. So listen to this conclusion. Listen. you got to get this because this launches us back into worship through song. C.S. Lewis helps us to understand this principle of praise in chapter 9 of his book called Reflections on the Psalms. Now listen. This is what he writes. I think we delight to praise 
what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed, it, it, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Our Father commands praise in prayer because we cannot get at unspeakable and full of glory, joy, until we get, the, until we get out the joy in praise. Listen, if you're, if you're beholding, if you're thinking, if you're appraising, then you'll be expressing why. Because your heart is going to be so filled with so much of the glory of God and the love of God and the greatness of God and the majesty of God and the excellencies of God and on and on and on I could go that your heart, if it doesn't, if it doesn't express or get out the joy you won't be able to fully enjoy the joy in your heart. Are you tracking with me? You can't fully enjoy it. All Lewis is saying is, and we've all experienced it, we've had some great experience in our life, some movie, some show, some place we've been, and, and, and it's just not the same if we don't talk about it, right? All we want to do is come back and tell, this is what my trip was like. This is what I saw. This is what that movie was like. This, we went here, and this is what it was like. Why? Because the more that you get out what's been put in, the more you get of it. The more enjoyment there is of it. And so if you and I realize the first most important step in prayer is to hallow God's name. It will reorient our hearts and reorient our pray, praying. And prayer will become our highest enjoyment because prayer becomes one of the places that we get out the joy that's inside of us. And that as we get it out, we just enjoy more of what we already have. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I told David, I said, look, I want to I shift the, the, the last, the, our, three of our five songs to the end because here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to take this time. We've got communion set up at both tables. So you can go to the communion table at any point in time. Why? Because communion is our highest joy. Communion is where we go and we remember, right? We remember what Christ has done for us. And how can we not be but overwhelmed with joy because of what he has done for us? But also, the, these songs that we're about to sing are an opportunity for you to get out and express what you feel about who God is because all you've done has been beholding him and you've been thinking about him and you've been appraising him. You, you, you've been holding him up and saying, look how, look how great he is and look how worthless this is. This is what I've held up in high esteem, but now that I put God up to where he belongs, this 
is worthless. This is rubbish. This is not where my heart belongs. Listen, and if you'll start doing that, then you can love your children without killing them. You can. And what I, what do I mean by that? By, 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 by putting a weight on them that they can't bear. You'll have a better marriage. Why? Because you'll take the weight off your spouse that you, you put on your spouse that, that they can't carry. You know what? You'll enjoy your job tomorrow when you go back to work. Why? Because you, you've taken the weight off of your job because you look at it and you look at who Christ is and you're like, why in the world would I worship this when I've got him to worship? And when you worship him, now you can go enjoy this. Does any of that make sense to you? Well, let's stand and let's express to him what we feel about him.